Okay, so we're going to um, plow ahead, and we got our last two talks are on uh, issues with chronic pain and opioid use. And our first speaker is Dr. Jesse Merlin, who's an associate professor of medicine at University of Pittsburgh. Um, and she's going to talk to us about patients with chronic pain. Uh, anybody ever seen a case of someone who's got chronic pain? And what do you do for that? And, um, and she's going to have a, a, s a couple comments on um, medicinal marijuana. So, Jesse. Well, I know I'm not talking to a novice audience when it comes to chronic pain, that's for sure. Um, so I should tell you the perspective I come at from this is that not only is this my research area of focus, but I, I run a chronic pain clinic for people living with HIV um, and I've done so for many years, um, both when I was at UAB and now at University of Pittsburgh. So I'm in the trenches with you. Um, so let's talk about this. So, and I have no disclosures. Okay. So. I'm going to talk about state of the science, um, get you, everybody up to date, um, and then we'll talk about the evaluation of chronic pain and management of chronic pain. And note that I haven't even mentioned opioids yet because I think sometimes opioid management gets conflated with chronic pain management, but I think we've learned a lesson about that in the last several years, that maybe that's not the best idea. And so I really want to focus on how do we best manage chronic pain, but then, of course, no talk about chronic pain would be complete without Ooh, opioids, okay. So, state of the science in HIV. So, first ARS question. So, which statement about chronic pain is true? Chronic pain is very uncommon, occurring less than 1% of the population. We don't know anything about the biologic basis of chronic pain. There are many highly efficacious, widely available treatments, and chronic pain is influenced by psychological and social factors. As requested, thank you. Vote, vote. All right, good. All right, good. So most of you knew this, and we're going to talk lots about this. All right, so what is chronic pain? Just to put us all on the same page here. So this is pain that lasts for greater than three months beyond the period of normal tissue healing. So examples of this might be things like chronic low back pain, where there may not have been an initial injury, or maybe there was. Um, other regional musculoskeletal pain, like knee pain, shoulder pain. There's something called chronic widespread pain, where people have pain on both sides of the body and above and below the diaphragm. So that might be your patient, and also in the axial skeleton. So that might be a patient who's got low back pain, left knee pain, and right shoulder pain. Um, we often see headaches, of course, and peripheral neuropathy. Um, it's very common in the general population, so prevalence estimates are around 10 to 15%, depending on the most recent studies you look at. Um, it has a unique neurobiologic basis. I'm not going to be going into this, but just rest assured that it is not true, as some of my patients have told me that they've seen providers who've said, you have this strange, mysterious chronic pain syndrome, really don't understand it. Chronic pain in general and the sort of perpetuation of pain, despite the fact that there's no ongoing injury happening, um, is actually something that's a very um, sort of seriously studied topic. Um, and it's heavily influenced by not only biological factors, as I just alluded to, but also psychological and social factors. So for example, depression can cause chronic pain, chronic pain can make depression worse, social isolation can make chronic pain worse, et cetera. 
Chronic pain is also associated with substantial disability, as you probably can relate to from your practices. Um, it can be difficult to treat. Um, the best treatments, as you'll see, are things that are often not available to us, a lot of the non-pharmacologic treatments, and the medications we use come with risk. Um, and the National Academy of Medicine and also the DHHS National Pain Strategy have really highlighted the fact that chronic pain is a key area of research focus, especially in vulnerable populations like ours. So epidemiology of chronic pain and HIV. So as you probably are aware, neuropathic pain is what's been classically described. But recent studies show a predominance of musculoskeletal pain, including from my group and other groups, where the most common type of chronic pain that's seen in HIV settings is really low back pain, followed by peripheral neuropathy, and then followed by other regional musculoskeletal pain syndromes. Um, and multi-site pain is common. So studies um, in large HIV cohorts like Scenics, where the majority of patients are virologically suppressed, um, have found that um, about 20% of people who have chronic pain actually have multi-site pain. Okay. So I really want to impress on you that chronic pain is an important comorbidity in our patient population. So just like you're documenting all the other things we've talked about today, whether it's STDs or hepatitis B or any of these other things on your problem list, it's really important to keep this on your problem list and make sure to address it. So why do I say that? Two key reasons. There are many more I could discuss with you, but here are the two key ones I can think of. So one is prevalence. So depending on the study you look at, um, the prevalence of chronic pain in this population is anywhere from 30 to 85%. Now that's an impossibly large range, and the reason for that range is because 30% comes more from studies where patients are well engaged in care and have lower rates, rates of psychiatric and substance comorbidities. 85% comes from populations that are recruited from the community with higher rates of um, those comorbidities. But at any rate, that's much higher than what we see in the general population. The other thing to keep in mind is that we're learning more and more all the time about how chronic pain in people living with HIV impacts HIV outcomes. So, and I've listed several citations there, um, but retention in care, function, healthcare utilization, suboptimal adherence to antiretrovirals, use of heroin, poor patient provider engagement, these are all things that um, are impacted by chronic pain. So something that we should all be paying attention to. Given all of that, you would think that there's a large, robust literature on what to do about chronic pain in this population. But interestingly, there is not. So this is a systematic review that we did several years ago. Um, but um, the, there really haven't been many studies since then that would have changed the conclusions. So we found 11 studies, mostly low or very low quality. Most were pharmacologic and sponsored by drug companies, um, which of course introduces some bias. Um, the four non-pharmacologic interventions included two studies of cognitive behavioral therapy, one of hypnosis and one of medical cannabis. Um, two, there were two controlled studies with positive results, capsaicin and cannabis, but both had short-term follow-up, less than 12 weeks, and in fact, the cannabis study was really looking at hours. Okay, this does not exactly apply um, to clinical settings. Um, so to sum it up, there's not a lot out there. So a lot of what we do clinically for patients with chronic pain who have HIV is based on the general medical literature. So from a research perspective, there's lots here to do. From a clinical perspective, you know, we extrapolate from the general population. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about evaluation, right? I know my patient's pain is real because the patient says so, the patient's partner says so, the MRI says so, or I have no idea, how should I know? Please vote. 
Great, okay. All right, good. So most of you said the patient says so, and this is a little bit of a, um, just a thought-provoking question. So I hear a lot of times that, oh, the patient's MRI was totally normal. I can't understand why they have pain. And so we know that um, there really isn't a good biomarker for pain. It's certainly not imaging studies. So there have been great studies done that have imaged people without chronic pain and people with chronic pain and have found that the studies look similar. So going after imaging findings to figure out if somebody has pain is not, not very uh, wise. Um, Pain is also inherently subjective, and I get this comment a lot like, oh, you study pain, that must be so difficult because it's inherently subjective, and that's true. So while, yes, I may have had some people who I feel like I don't know if they have pain, maybe they're malingering, that is such a diagnosis of exclusion. If your patient says they have pain, they have pain, move on from there, okay. Um, so history and screening, um, it's all that stuff that you learned in school plus some pearls that I want to share with you. So the main thing that we care about is the impact of pain on people's function. So it's a very different person who has 10 out of 10 pain but is working a full-time job versus somebody with 10 out of 10 pain that's bed-bound, right? We care very much in the chronic pain field about whether people can do the things that make them them, okay? Um, I will often ask people how they spend their time, and a lot of times people will say to me, I'm on disability. Well. Okay, I mean, a lot of my patients are on disability, but still, we wanna know, are they getting up and spending time with friends? Are they engaged in volunteer activities? Everybody has the opportunity to be interactive in that way, um, and it really helps with chronic pain management. Um, there are tools like the PEG, which you can Google as a three-question tool to um, follow people over time in terms of how much pain impacts their function. Um, I always look at pain management history so we don't reinvent the wheel. Um, and I screen for things that commonly co-occur with chronic pain. And we're gonna talk about the importance of treating mood disorders in patients with chronic pain in a moment, but you really wanna screen for depression and anxiety. You really wanna screen for substance use, and Doug's gonna give a talk about substance use and sleep problems, because if you don't look, you're gonna miss it. Okay. The other thing you wanna do is note coping and self-management behaviors. So. The reason this is important is because maladaptive coping strategies with chronic pain, for example, what we call fear avoidance, where people like say, you know, I want to avoid exacerbating my low back pain, so I'm going to spend all day in bed. Those types of behaviors are actually associated with much worse outcomes. And so when you hear people saying these things, you just kind of want to note it because it might be something you want to come back to later. Diagnostic testing. So of course the purpose of this talk is not to think about every chronic pain syndrome and every diagnostic test you could possibly do, but just to give you the general guidance that evidence-based judicious use is best. Um, you can't always see pain on an image or a blood test like we just said a moment ago. And this is a challenge for both the patient and the provider because the patient wants a smoking gun, like why do I have this? Um, and of course that's how we're trained too, right? Um, so it's a communication challenge. Um, if I do order a test, what I typically say to people is, I'm ordering this MRI because for a patient with your characteristics based on, you know, there's actually a great annals paper from several years ago that will tell you when to order the MRI, when it's cost effective. Based on that, it's recommended that we order this just to make sure there's nothing unusual or scary going on, which I doubt. And if there isn't, then we'll say that you, you have chronic pain and we know what to do with that. You know, we're really looking for something, you know, a mass lesion or something like that in a patient who's older, who's lost weight, et cetera. Okay, management, all right. Treating chronic pain is challenging because communication about chronic pain can be difficult. So 
patients and providers can come to this encounter with some baggage. You're probably not the first person they've seen about their chronic pain. So they may have been told that not just that mood is important in chronic pain, but maybe that it's all in their head or that they're just looking for drugs or that they have some mysterious syndrome that no one will ever figure out. And so they may come to the table with this. And you may come to the table with some baggage yourself. You may have had patients who have been challenging to manage. You may have had patients who um, have had challenges with opioids. And sometimes opioids, rather than functional restoration and getting people to do those activities that make them them, become the focus of the conversation rather than how to get better from chronic pain, okay? Providers are not trained to take care of chronic pain. I mean, maybe I'll just speak for myself, but after you know, medicine residency, an ID fellowship, and a palliative care fellowship, I still had no clue how to take care of chronic pain. So I'm sure that there are people in the audience in the same boat. The financial incentive is to write a prescription, not to have a conversation. Um, medications we often use have risk, as we'll discuss. Patients may have mood disorders and addiction, commonly comorbid with chronic pain that may color their ability to communicate with us. And the best treatments, which we'll talk about, non-pharmacologic treatments are often inaccessible. But there's lots you can do. So general treatment pearls, remember, first do no harm. These are patients who are at very high risk of being polypharmacized, if that's a word, um, over-surgerized, um, if that's a word. So you wanna do what you can to not contribute to that. And if you see somebody who's in the midst of something like that, to try to intervene when I have patients who say, oh, I have low back pain, I'm gonna have a spinal fusion, which is a low value intervention, no evidence base. Um, I like to try to probe them a little bit on, well, tell me more about the conversation you have with the surgeon. What do you think you're gonna get out of it? Make sure you ask your surgeon these types of questions, that sort of thing. Um, so you wanna focus on things that are evidence-based. Set concrete goals and timelines. So if you are gonna try a new therapy, let's say a medication, you'll say, okay, we're gonna give this a try and we might go up on the dose a little bit. And you know, but if after, period of time, let's say a few months, if it doesn't work, we're gonna stop it because you definitely don't need to be on medications that are not helping you. Um, and then be ready to discontinue therapies that don't work. And if possible, treat psychiatric illness first. We don't need an extra special reason to treat people's mood disorders. Um, and there are no randomized trials of treating mood disorders versus not treating mood disorders in patients with chronic pain, obviously. But I will often have people who come to me with chronic pain who have severe depression that just hasn't sort of flown under the radar or even moderate depression that's flown under the radar that hasn't been adequately treated. You treat it and suddenly their pain just becomes a lot easier for them to deal with. And so you really wanna make sure you're not missing this. You wanna learn some tricks from your psychology colleagues. So um, this Managing Pain Before It Manages You is a CBT self-help book. This is for people with a really high literacy level. So when I have patients like that, I recommend this book, you can get it on Amazon, um, but I've also read it myself and I actually use some of the tools when I talk to my patients. Um, and motivational interviewing, I'm sure many of you have been through trainings on MI, I've done lots of MI trainings and, and conducted MI trainings. This is a fantastic way of working with people on behavior change, happy to talk more about it. So at a first visit, I will typically talk to people, uh, sort of do a psychoeducation session about chronic pain. So what is chronic pain? I talk to them about the fact that there is a neurobiologic basis to chronic pain, that they have a disease called chronic pain, even if we can't, if, if it's not called something fancy from an x-ray, it's called chronic pain, that it's gonna take a little while for us to kind of work together, but I think with some patience 
and partnership and collaboration, there's a lot of hope that things are gonna get better. I talk about both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic pain management right out of the gate, so people know to expect that. The role of multiple team members, I usually come into the room, I, so I run a chronic pain clinic and I've developed a multidisciplinary team, which is really an important approach, and so you know, I often come into the room with the physical therapist I work with and the pharmacist and, my, and the nurse, and so, um, but if you are gonna do something like that, just letting people know that we all work as a team, um, the mind-body connection, letting people know that yeah, mood can influence pain. And oftentimes I'll ask people, you know, like for example, someone who's having depression, who has depression, when you're feeling down, do you ever notice that it makes your pain worse? A lot of people will tell me that that's true and that actually when their pain is worse, they feel more down and they get into this cycle. And people can really relate to that. I usually get a strong head nod to that. And then I talk about functional goals like we mentioned before. So non-opioid pharmacologic therapies. So you guys are very familiar with these. I'm just gonna give you a couple of pearls. So acetaminophen and NSAIDs in our patients who are often hospitalized, often have multiple other chronic conditions, these are not great for long-term use, okay? So keeping that in mind. Muscle relaxants and benzos, no evidence for long-term use and lots of concern about harms. We're gonna talk about anticonvulsants in one second. Antidepressants, things like duloxetine, actually are now approved for chronic low back pain and knee osteoarthritis. I think sometimes we forget about topicals. Um, they can be really effective, especially topical NSAIDs for um, osteoarthritis. I wanna make a mention of this. Gabapentinoids are receiving, um, this sort of a hot topic in the pain literature, receiving attention. Um, Tara Gomes has done two really excellent studies looking at gabapentin and pregabalin and the combination of those with opioids and the risk of mortality. So as you can imagine, they increase the risk of mortality. And so you just want to be mindful of this. I feel like for a long time I handed this out like candy. I know a lot of us do, um, but they're not, totally benign. Um, and in addition to that, there's this great um, sort of editorial perspective piece in JAMA recently about all the off-label use of gabapentinoid drugs. You know, I just, I have patients with low back pain that come to me on pregabalin, and it's like I can't figure out why. So this piece talks about sort of why that might be the case, the, the sort of cultural factors that influence this, but I think this is something we really ought to be sort of steering ourselves away from. Non-pharmacologic approaches to chronic pain. So um, this is a little bit of a busy slide, I apologize. So the Journal of General Internal Medicine about a month or two ago had an entire issue dedicated to this. Um, and so these are my four favorite papers from that, but probably the most important for you guys is the one at the top left corner. So we have great evidence for these non-pharmacologic treatments. So CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness, exercise-based therapies, including Tai Chi and yoga, manual therapies, and multimodal care, including collaborative care, stepped care. This is now an implementation issue, which I probably don't have to tell you because I don't know how many of you have access to this stuff, but many people do not, okay? And I put these other studies up here so that you're aware that they exist, that basically there's a lot of, there are a lot of folks trying to understand what facilitates uptake of these types of interventions. So this could be a whole day this slide. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm very happy to answer questions about this. I have a whole bunch of bonus slides. People are so inclined. The, so I, I live in Pennsylvania where this is legal medically, but not recreationally. I'm certified to certify people. We do not prescribe. We certify people. There is very low quality evidence 
the strongest of that crappy evidence is for neuropathic pain. We know more and more all the time about the harms. Does this sound familiar, like opioids? Okay, so I, I actually haven't certified anybody yet. So people come to me, I have a certification visit with them and we talk about how to manage their chronic pain. Okay, CBT, no evidence-based, no regulation. So that's, it's like supplements. Okay, my best advice to you about all of this is to develop a team in your office. So doing this type of care systematically for everyone is really, really hard one patient at a time. So if you have a team of people that can come together to look at this in a holistic way to try to get people connected to all the different types of treatments available that may help, that's really the best way to do this. And there's, there's good evidence to suggest that. Um, so you wanna develop a team not only in your office but in your community because it's unlikely that you're gonna be able to have an addiction psychiatrist and a physical therapist and a, you know, all these people in your office. But if you have people that you can refer to who can give you feedback that you can work with, that's really key. Okay, so this is the sun, this is OxyContin in the middle of our solar system. So this is not my slide, I, I borrowed it from a friend um, with her permission, but the idea here is this is often what happens when we talk about chronic pain, but you know, I'm like 20 minutes into this talk and we're just getting to opioids and there's a very good reason for that. We have way more to offer than opioids, but we gotta talk about opioids, so here we go. My take on opioids. So. And it's not just my take. I, this is where the field is moving, although there's been some back, backlash against this, but opioids are not first-line therapy for chronic pain. I think in 2019, we say that definitively, no question. I do think they work for some people. Some people are nihilists and say, like, never opioids for anybody. I, I don't quite believe that. However, the evidence of their benefit is really limited, and what we know about their risk is growing all the time. So you guys are probably aware that the CDC issued a guideline um, in 2016 about long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain. I put the website up there, but it's a pretty good read and has some, despite the fact it's gotten a lot of criticism, a lot of it warranted, I think that the language in there actually makes a lot of sense. So um, this is a systematic review that was really the main review that the CDC guideline relied on um, when it issued its um, recommendations. So basically what this systematic review came up with was that evidence is really insufficient to determine the effectiveness of long-term opioid therapy for improving pain and function. Now this review is a few years old and since then there's been another systematic review and meta-analysis on the right that basically found the same thing. It was sort of like an updated version of the prior one. And then on the left, we have this very famous study, the SPACE trial, um, conducted by Aaron Krebs, who, which basically found that for low back and osteoarthritis pain, opioids at a year were no better um, or non-inferior to um, NSAIDs and Tylenol. So just more evidence that opioids probably don't have a very central role in chronic pain for people who are not already on them. Whoops, sorry, hang on. Um, and as I mentioned, we have lots of evidence of risks and harms. So decreased function return to work, increased depression, which is probably a, more of a duration than a dose effect, motor vehicle accidents, even at what I would think of as relatively low doses of morphine, you know, a couple Vicodin and there you are, um, falls, addiction, and of course, overdose. And one key pearl is that overdose is significantly increased with um, doses over 100 milligram equivalents of morphine a day and with co-prescription of benzos. And now we're learning more about gabapentin and pregabalin. So there you have it. 
So you've got that person sitting in front of you, so what are you to do? So this is the less common case, whether to start. I mean, I haven't started anybody on opioids in maybe five years, six years. I mean, it's been a long time. So the person to start on opioids maybe is somebody who is truly exhausted absolutely everything else in a very comprehensive way. And most people really have not. And most people will get benefit if, as they try things. So this is, um, this is not a common scenario. Whether to continue is like your everyday life. So, you know, inheriting patients who are on long-term opioid therapy, this is my everyday life as well. So this is how I think about it. So you should be evaluating benefits and harms of continued therapy with patients every three months or more frequently. I know that sounds like a lot because you're not seeing your patients every three months, but this is what the CDC guideline recommends, and I, I agree with this, that basically you wanna be checking in with them pretty frequently, and I just, you know, trying to decide whether the benefits outweigh the risks. So if the person is marching forward and things seem to be going fine and, you know, they're very functional and they're not having any adverse consequences from their opioids, then you might say the benefits outweigh the risks, continue to prescribe. Um, you might also say, hey, there's all this new evidence about opioids. We can try to get you down on your dose a little bit to see if that might, that just might reduce your risk. Just like we manage your lipids so you don't have heart disease, maybe I should manage your opioids so you don't have overdose, accidental overdose. Okay, I mean, that's a pretty reasonable approach. Um, so the prior slide talked about evaluating for harms. So how are we doing that? When you're bringing them back every three months or every six months or however often you wanna bring them back, what are you doing? So you're using what we call an opioid treatment agreement. The word contract is a bit pejorative. It kind of assumes that there's this uh, unequal relationship between the patient and the provider. Really what we wanna do is have a conversation with the patient in an informed consent discussion. That's what an opioid treatment agreement is. Um, so that's a good patient education tool and oftentimes as you're going through it with people, things will come up um, and so you can use it as sort of a monitoring tool as well. We do those annually. Um, urine drug testing. Um, not great evidence for this, but it's really become the standard of care. We do this um, annually or more frequently. Um, and the purpose of urine drug testing is really to understand whether there's anything in the urine that you don't expect or whether the thing that you think should be in the urine is missing, like the thing you're prescribing. Urine drug testing is um, complicated. So if you, in, and this, this is like a whole talk in and of itself, but there are lots of reasons for false positives and false negatives, which I'm happy to go into. So the bottom line is my recommendation to you as somebody who's you know, maybe not an expert in urine drug testing but using it is if you get a result that you don't understand, call your friendly toxicologist or your friendly chemistry person at your lab. You can email me and I'm happy to talk you through it. That's really what you wanna be doing. Um, and then practitioner database monitoring programs, which are available now in every state, um, where you can check and see whether the patient has been prescribed opioids or any other controlled substances by other places. And every state has their own kind of unique way that they've implemented this. So you just kind of want to know, you know, what does it include in my state? But, um, and then the other thing you want to do is be alert to concerning behaviors that arise, which we're going to talk about. So I'm actually going to skip these slides because I've basically talked about them. Okay, so concerning behaviors. So this is usually where people like ask a thousand questions and get really excited and want to present all their cases, which is great. So examples of concerning behaviors include unexpected urine results, so that urine that's positive for cocaine or that person who has repeatedly negative urines for the OxyContin high dose that you've been prescribing them. Um, 
running out early or other prescription problems, going onto the PDMP and seeing, oh my gosh, multiple prescribers are there, or the patient is going to the ED frequently, um, belligerent behavior around opioids. These are just some examples, there are many more. Um, the key take-homes about this is that all of these behaviors have a differential diagnosis. So I will often get clinicians coming to me saying, my patient's urine drug screen was negative for the prescribed opioid they're diverting. And so it's just like anything else in medicine. I mean, that is one thing on the differential. It's very hard to prove that that's happening typically. There are a lot of other things on the differential, like maybe they don't they have low health literacy and they don't really understand how they're supposed to be taking it. Maybe they're taking more than prescribed because they have a lot of pain or because they're developing an opioid use disorder. So you've got to kind of go through that whole differential. So as tips for evaluating these behaviors, detailed exploration with the patient, a lot of re-education going back through the opioid treatment agreement about how to take these medications safely. Oftentimes this prompts closer monitoring, small prescriptions, really as I often will put it to my trainees to shine a microscope on the situation because oftentimes just one or two of these behaviors, you can't really figure out what's going on, but if you bring them back frequently enough, you'll start to figure it out. Um, and involvement of psychiatry and addiction colleagues if you feel like that would be helpful. Um, okay, so that, how does that project? Well, okay, not too bad. So the purpose of this is not for me to go through this diagram, but to let you know that this exists. So. Um, we published a study about a year ago in the Journal of General Internal Medicine where we basically we did a Delphi study to establish consensus on how to manage the most common and challenging of these behaviors. So we focused on um, illicit drug use and missing appointments and angry and belligerent behavior, running out early, et cetera. And we actually developed algorithms based on our, our findings. And so these algorithms can be found on this website, um, which is a website from a clinical trial. It's a long story what that website's from. But anyway, mytopcare.org is a really good resource. It's, it's an academic resource. It's from um, a colleague of mine who's at Pitt now, used to be at BU, but has all kinds of like urine drug testing interpretation tools. It has these algorithms and lots of other things. So just know that this is available. Um, so one of the key things in managing these types of behaviors is really, and most of these algorithms have this as a branch point, you really want to decide whether you think the patient has an opioid use disorder, okay? So if you, and I'll show you the diagnostic criteria in a minute, because if they have an opioid use disorder, they need to be treated for. Now they have chronic pain and another problem. Um, this can be hard because when, you, when the person supplying the drug, so to speak, is doctor, it, opioid use disorders can look a little bit different, right? So regardless though, even if you can't put your money on the opioid use disorder, you might just decide that this is not a safe situation and you have to stop their opioids. So Doug Bruce is gonna give a whole talk on opioid use disorder, but I'm just highlighting a few of the criteria that I think are most relevant when you're prescribing opioids. So unsuccessful efforts to cut down. If I tell a patient, you know, you're overtaking by two pills a day, what I need you to do is to cut down from six pills a day to four pills a day for one month. Can you do it? Yeah, 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 I can do it. And they come back the next month, or maybe I bring them back two weeks later, so it's a little bit sooner, and they weren't able to do it, okay? Great deal of time spent. That might be time calling your office. That might be time in the emergency room. That might be time being an inpatient, really, over a chronic pain exacerbation. So that's different than what we see in patients with heroin use disorders, where the time is spent out there, you wouldn't see it. Here, we can see it. 
People may report craving, and I ask about it. And then continued use of opioids despite harm. So I had a patient when I was at UAB, actually, who had a documented accidental opioid overdose, was in the hospital for almost an entire year, including her rehab stay, came back out on opioids, believe it or not, which happens a lot. Um, and when I saw her and I said, well, you almost died. I said it more nicely than this, but it's like, you almost died that time. This is not a good long-term plan. Oh, no, no, it wasn't a big deal. All right. This is complicated. Maybe I can just avoid it. The bad news is that you can't send everybody to a pain specialist because there aren't enough of them, of us. So regardless of your training or where you are, patients are going to look to you for help, and it's very rewarding. The way to make this as easy as possible is to develop those systems we talk about, talked about, utilizing unique skills of people in your practice, so social workers, pharmacists who can really help. Um, panel management approaches, so I've included this citation. This is basically a way to manage opioids for all of your patients by having a nurse focal person who's going to do all that monitoring so you don't have to remember to do it every time. And then also, when there are concerning behaviors, that person will know about it and has expertise in how to manage it. And then these resources that we've talked about today. So in sum, chronic pain is a big problem. We have a lot more to offer than opioids. And if you do prescribe opioids, monitor as we discuss, diagnose and facilitate addiction treatment, and utilize available resources. So thank you very much. It's difficult, isn't it? So um, lots of things to dig into. Um, and I think you're right that each one of the things that could be a barrier like uh, diverting or whatever, there's a lot of possibilities. Um, since you said you had some extra slides, I'll just kick it off on the medical marijuana. <laughs> you're, you're, in, you're in Pennsylvania where you say medical marijuana is legal. Is that yes. right? Uh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when do you use it or do you use it? Yeah. So I think the time to use medical marijuana, if there is a time, which I think is a big if given the evidence base, is, is very similar to opioids. When somebody has truly tried absolutely everything else, nothing has worked, um, the patient has significant functional impairment, and you don't think that the risks outweigh the potential benefits. Like the patient does not have an active marijuana use disorder, which sometimes happens, or another substance use disorder, or very poorly controlled depression. So it has to be kind of that perfect synthesis of things. The problem is that medical marijuana is implemented very differently in different places. So in the state of New York, medical marijuana is implemented in such a way that for many, so for example, I have colleagues at um, Einstein, and they actually have a relationship with the local dispensary where the dispensary um, uh, manager is a family practice physician who will call them and really collaborate with them. Um, there's a pharmacist there that will talk to them about dosing. Compare that to Pennsylvania, where I don't get any feedback from the dispensary. When I ask the dispensary if they'll follow my recommendations, they say, no, you know less about this than we do. Um, so it really depends upon how things are implemented in your state. And then a whole another question is, what about states where it's legal uh, recreationally? What is the role of medical marijuana there? So, um, and that's to be determined, I think, so. Yeah. So I, I'll refer to a specific case example yeah. that you and I took care of. Um, <laughs> the guy had, he was a 
long-term HIV survivor, but had a lot of disability from his HIV. He had very advanced disease, but a young guy, maybe mid-40s um, after he had been through a lot. And, and he had a, a chronic pain syndrome uh, who was on fentanyl at I a fairly high dose yep. and benzos at fairly high doses. And um, you started taking care of him. We were both very concerned about him breathing one moment to the next. And um, ultimately put the ball in his court to come up with a strategy. And he, the benzos would be harder to get off of, but we were successful at getting him off of the fentanyl that he created his own taper regimen and he followed it. But he wanted to substitute the fentanyl with uh, marijuana and we let him do that. But the problem was, yeah, the problem was that he, um, it's not legal in Alabama. So we were in essence encouraging him to uh, break the law right. uh, for the sake of his health. Um, and so just maybe if you want to comment on that, I know yep. you're getting to your- um, I'm trying to find this one particular slide. Well, you wrote them up. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, this is not right. him. But while, so you're looking, while you're looking, I will say that I saw this guy about a month ago and he's doing great. He's yeah. functional. He's a writer. He's back writing again. He, uh, he has total control of his life. Um, he's even backing off a little bit on the marijuana because he says it makes him tired and he, he needs the energy to write. So, you know, one end of one success story, sort of. Sorry for that long scroll. Yeah, so what do you got? So, so here's the thing. I mean, so there is great hope, misplaced hope, but great hope that marijuana will replace opioids, right? Like we can just get people off of opioids by giving them medical marijuana. And so the legality issue aside, whether people are using it illegally or recreationally or medically or what have you, the reason this even came to light is because there were some, there are several ecological studies that have shown that in, for example, in states that legalize medical marijuana or recreational marijuana, that they have less opioid overdose deaths. These, I mean, they're ecological studies. They cannot show causation. And so based on this, the state of Pennsylvania approved medical marijuana for the treatment of opioid use disorder, I kid you not, okay? This is really dangerous, okay? So this is a fantastic, um, like a commentary, I guess, in JAMA that Rich Sates wrote, who's, he's a big guy in addiction medicine, if you don't know him. And basically, <laughs> the suggestion that patients should be self-substituted drug like cannabis that has not been subjected to a single clinical trial for opioid addiction, and he talks in other parts of this about chronic pain too, um, is irresponsible and should be reconsidered. And he makes the analogy here that um, this is maybe similar to um, telling a diabetic that they should take cannabis instead of insulin. So I think it's, are you gonna have patients who come to you and tell you I smoke marijuana and I don't need my opioids anymore? Sure, you have patients who come to you and tell you all kinds of different things. Um, should this be an approach? No. Right. But in a guy who's on fentanyl and benzos at high doses. So in a guy who's on fentanyl and benzos at high doses, tapering and offering evidence-based chronic pain treatment is the best approach. Okay, right. Then the problem that we had, I'm just sorry to make this case example, but um, the problem we had is that he was not going to voluntarily reduce his fentanyl and we would have had to have intervened, which would be quite Interject. I'm setting her up for a sludge. So, sorry, yeah. I should have organized this a little bit better so I know exactly where it is. But 
So, so tapering, right? So this is the question. Geez, sorry. Ugh. My animation is like killing me. Um, well, anyway, so, so there are a couple of studies on Tapering, okay, so tape, So if you wanna read about tapering opioids, so there is a really fantastic systematic review that is on the right by Joe Frank, where he looked at a whole bunch of different types of intervention. The issue is that the only types of tapers that have really been studied are voluntary tapers, and I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. To force people to taper is a different thing than a voluntary taper. Sometimes you have to force people to taper because they're, what they're doing is dangerous. And sometimes it's a little less clear, but for voluntary tapers, what we know is that a lot of psychosocial support really helps. Um, the other thing that you can talk to patients about if they want to sort of understand the evidence is that for people undergoing voluntary tapers, you can see in this other study, their really pain does not get worse. If anything, it gets a little bit better or it stays the same. So it becomes a challenge of communication, of weighing risks and benefits, of working with people over the long term, and really trying to think, is this somebody that urgently needs to be tapered, or is this somebody that can be tapered over a longer period of time, or does this person need to be tapered at all? There are people who live on high-dose opioids forever, and I wish they had never been started, but I can't turn back time, so you know, that's another open question. Okay, I agree. Um, it, it's, it's an open question, but it's also, I mean, I think what the way you frame this, that it, it can be rewarding. It can also be very frustrating. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and time consuming. I think that's what we're struggling with as a, as a group of providers, right? There's a lot of people who have the issue, and we spend a lot of time dealing with it. Even with a great team, um, it can consume a lot of time and resources, and I think that's why we struggle. I think we're looking for... Um, quick fixes and there aren't many. Right, well, that that's absolutely, I mean, there, I think when it can become rewarding is when you have enough tools in your toolbox that are like at your fingertips that mm -hmm. you can easily tap into, whether that it's that team in your clinic or that great person in your community to refer to. The other thing that I would say, and I, we talked about this a little bit at dinner last night, and maybe I'm kind of setting up for Doug's talk a little bit, is that I think a lot of times, in my experience, when it's taking up a lot of your time, it's because the person has an opioid use disorder that's either flying under the radar, it's kind of half-baked, like you're not totally sure, do they have an opioid use disorder? And there's like a lot of wringing of hands about whether, so in those situations, what I've started doing and a lot of my colleagues have started doing is just switching them to buprenorphine. So, um, and Doug will talk about how to choose which drug to use to treat opioid use disorder, but the reality is that in somebody with chronic pain, you probably want to use an opioid, and there's a lot of issue to, with access to methadone clinics. And so since I'm wavered to prescribe buprenorphine, and I hope you are too, you can just switch the person, um, and they often do a lot better. So, and then they're not tearing up the phone lines because they're not having mm -hmm. cravings, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. So, great. Thank you very much. This has been wonderful and a fantastic introduction to the next topic. Great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Okay. Thank you.